Hello and welcome back, Supreme Court Buffs. My name is Aaron Larson, and you are listening to the ninth installment of Landmark Decisions in the United States Supreme Court. The main focus of this podcast will be to highlight the key decisions that made the Supreme Court and the United States what it is today. In today's episode, we will be looking at the background and decision in the huge 1819 case of McCullough v. Maryland. This is the most important case to stand before the court since the decision was handed down in Marbury v. Madison. The name may sound familiar to you because it is quite often one of the biggest cases covered in American history and government classes in high schools across the United States. The case was first argued in the Supreme Court between February 21st and March 3rd of 1819 and was later decided on March 6th of the same year. Although he was dead 15 years prior to the case taking place, Alexander Hamilton lays at the center of the controversy for acts when he was the Secretary of the Treasury under George Washington's presidency. Hamilton a staunch Federalist, became the creator of the nation's first financial nucleus by proposing the establishment of a national bank. Now what exactly would this bank do? It is quite different from what we think of banks today. Instead, the national bank would be used to regulate American currency and deal with national economic problems. This proposal of a national bank came with much backlash especially from Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson. While political parties were complicated in the early years of the American Constitution, this is one major place where we start to see policy formation and the back and forth of what we picture parties as today. Not only was Jefferson against the establishment of a national bank, but the Democrat-Republicans rallied around him as their leader to fight against this act. Nonetheless, in 1791, the United States Congress created the first bank of the United States, establishing it with a 20-year charter effectively prolonging its life enough for the next generation to deal with. This bank was the political stalwart that stood as the icon of a strong central federal government. Coming out of the years under the Articles of Confederation, Of course, this was not what the opposition to the Federalists wanted. 1811 came around, and the charter for the bank was not renewed under the administration of James Madison, who stood with Jefferson and the Democrat-Republicans, but a peculiar lesson came out of the War of 1812. It was hard to pay back war loans, fix the infrastructure, and employ the military, without a significant banking and treasury system in place. Because of the national economic problems that came out of the war, Congress passed legislation in 1816 that created the second bank of the United States, much like what Hamilton had envisioned the first bank to look like. Now this is odd considering the Democrat Republicans became the majority party in the early years of the Constitution following the fall of the Federalists. Although he opposed the idea of a national bank 25 years earlier, President Madison finally came around and sponsored the creation of a new bank after seeing the nation fall on hard times. 
Still, there were many problems. The United States actually only owned 20% of the bank, and the bank did not solve the nation's economic problems. State governments became angry with how the bank was operating, as many of the loans that they were given were being called back for payment. This resulted in state legislation that greatly reduced the operations of the bank, and some states even went as far as prohibiting the bank from operating within its borders. The state of Maryland, on the other hand, did something unique. In 1818, the Maryland General Assembly passed a law placing a $15,000 yearly tax on any bank operating in Maryland that was not specifically chartered by the state itself. The only bank of this nature in Maryland was that of the Second Bank of the United States. Therefore, the Second Bank of the United States would be taxed $15,000 yearly by the state of Maryland. The bank refused to pay the state of Maryland their tax, so John James sued for himself and the state of Maryland in the county court of Baltimore to recover the accrued revenue the state was supposed to be paid. The defendant that was named in the case was James William McCullough, who headed the Baltimore branch of the second bank. This bank was represented by Daniel Webster, who was a Federalist that supported Hamilton and his vision of the National Bank. The trial court ruled in favor of John James and the state of Maryland, and the case was appealed to the Maryland Court of Appeals, who cited the Tenth Amendment in the Bill of Rights as their reasoning for why the National Bank is unconstitutional. Now what exactly is the Tenth Amendment? Under the Bill of Rights, the Tenth Amendment states that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by the Constitution to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. Because the Constitution is, quote, silent on the subject of banks, the state of Maryland contended that without constitutional authorization for the federal government to create a bank, any such creation either one, needed to be authorized by the states, or two, it would be an unconstitutional creation. As the Tenth Amendment stands, the bank was not a power delegated to the federal government, and there was nothing saying the states had to abide by the authorization of such a bank. The power invested in the bank, therefore, was unconstitutional if the states saw fit. Despite the seemingly fit constitutional argument made by James and the state of Maryland, the case was later appealed to the Supreme Court. Joined under a unanimous opinion, Chief Justice John Marshall delivered his majority opinion on March 6, 1819. The court agreed that the United States Congress had the power to create a federal bank and this was supported through four main theses by Chief Justice Marshall. The first argument for the bank was that in 1791, Congress, after much debate, enacted the first bank of the United States. This bank was then approved by then-President George Washington. 
Because Congress and the executive had shown they could create a bank in 1791, then it was theoretically constitutional for them to do the same in 1816 with the Second Bank of the United States. Next, Marshall argued against one of Maryland's main arguments. The argument was that, since the states were the official signers of the Constitution, they retain ultimate sovereignty because they ratified the Constitution. The states are the ones who are able to determine what in fact is constitutional in the first place. Marshall rebutted this, saying that although the states were the ones who signed, it was the people who ratified the Constitution, and therefore the people, not the states, are sovereign in their own right. The United States Constitution is for the people, not for the states. So, considering the people give power to the government, they are the ones who ultimately decide what in fact is constitutional. The third argument Marshall makes revolves around the necessary and proper clause in the Constitution. This is the main bulk of the case. The ultimate argument that the state of Maryland made was that Congress signed off on the idea of the bank, but nowhere in the Constitution does it say that Congress has a right to make the national bank. Marshall agreed that nowhere in the Constitution does it give Congress the specific right to make such an institution, but that does not take away their power to establish an institution of this nature. Now, the Necessary and Proper Clause takes place in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution and reads as follows. Congress shall have the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States. Now let me rephrase this a little. Congress has the power to make all laws which they deem to be necessary and proper. Therefore, if Congress sees that a national bank is necessary for the greater good of the United States, then they have the ability to use their power to enact one. In order for Congress to fulfill its taxing and spending powers, Marshall agreed that it was entirely ethical for Congress to create the first and second banks of the United States. McCullough v. Maryland marks the first test of the Necessary and Proper Clause in the United States Supreme Court, and since then it has been used many times in the judicial system. Marshall rejected Maryland's argument that the word necessary limits the total issues Congress may address. Instead, he made it clear that laws passed by Congress may still be necessary without it being imperative that the law is passed. If only essential laws were to be passed by Congress, Marshall says, then that would greatly diminish the power not only of the legislative branch, but of the entire federal government. Chief Justice John Marshall concluded that Maryland could not tax the bank without violating the Constitution, as he commented that the power to tax involves the power to destroy. The tax was therefore in violation with the Supremacy Clause in the Constitution, which states that the federal government is the supreme power in the United States. 
Marshall ended the case arguing that Congress has implied powers that are not expressly stated in the Constitution. And as long as Congress and the executive employ actions that are still related to the text, then they are to be completely constitutional. Through this opinion, the Supreme Court answered two major questions. One, did Congress have the authority to establish the bank? And two, did the Maryland legislature wrongly interfere with congressional powers? To both questions, the court answered yes. The case of McCullough v. Maryland proves to be a significant moment in the American federalistic system. There finally came the formation of what constituted federal powers and what constituted state powers. Throughout the years, one major criticism has come through on this case, and that involves the Tenth Amendment which gives states the right to enact legislation not given directly to the federal government. Many have questioned the purpose of this amendment if, in fact, Congress had the power to pass any law they deemed necessary and proper. Was the Tenth Amendment violated through Chief Justice Marshall's ruling? Or does the necessary and proper clause shadow over the complete meaning of the amendment? Overall, McCullough v. Maryland possibly becomes the second most significant case coming out of the Marshall Court, only below that of Marbury v. Madison. This case serves as the first substantial constitutional case after the judicial review cases early in the 19th century. Without it, states would theoretically have the complete power to tax federal institutions and the entire idea of American federalism would have crashed only three decades after the passing of the second constitution. The power invested in Congress and the federal government with regards to the bank, though, was short-lived. States' rights activists gained a major win in 1828 with the election of President Andrew Jackson. By 1832, Jackson vetoed a bill to recharter the bank for another 20 years, ending the debate over whether or not it was entirely constitutional. He also vetoed many more bills in the coming years that would make it possible to remake the bank in the coming years after his presidency. By the time the 20th century came, it was clear that Marshall's broad interpretation of the Necessary and Proper Clause would not limit the federal government for long and instead would benefit it, especially during both world wars as well as the Great Depression. Further reading from today's podcast can be found on the Library of Congress website where court decisions are published, Bray Hammond's 1957 book, Bank Politics in America from the Revolution to the Civil War, as well as Harold Plaus and Gordon Baker's 1957 article, McCullough v. Maryland, Right Principle, Wrong Case, published in Stanford Law Review 9. Come back next week when we will discuss the 1819 case of Trustees of Dartmouth College v. Woodward and its role as a landmark case in the Supreme Court. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter under the username of at ALARS175 if you wish to leave me comments and questions on today's episode. 
I ask that you please follow, rate, and like my podcast so I can continue to improve my skills and gain listeners. I also ask that you think about supporting this podcast through the link in the description. Thank you for listening and see you next week. All of the work and research done for this podcast is the sole property of myself, Aaron Larson, and shall not be downloaded or redistributed without my express written consent. Thank you.